I'm Steve McLeod and this is Bootstrapped. It's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one. I run two bootstrapped software products, Feature Upvote, which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product, and Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts, and just maybe you'll learn something too. Back in episode 155, Alex Yumashev came on the show and talked about the challenge of competing in a crowded market. That turned out to be a popular episode, one of the most popular episodes in all of 2020, which Alex doesn't actually know until right now. Well, good news for fans of Alex, he's back today. So Alex, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Hello. How do you feel about that news that I just told oh, you? It's uh, flattering. I had no idea. I thought it was just me and my wife listening to the episode <laughs> and a couple of friends maybe. <laughs> well, if you kept listening to it over and over again, maybe it was recording each of that as a new, a new yeah, subscriber. Probably. Actually, it's quite hard to tell exactly how many people listen to a podcast because you can tell how many people download it, but that's not the same as listening. You know, the podcasting apps just download automatically. But... Some people listen to the podcast via Spotify and Spotify does tell you actual plays and how far people got through it before they stopped it. And on Spotify, on the stats that for Spotify listeners, you were number one for all of 2020. There you go. Cool. Cool. Wow. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Now, anybody else who's listening, who runs a podcast is thinking, I need to get Alex on my show too. Sorry, Alex, if you're going to get bombarded. Hey, enough about the podcast. Alex, give us a quick reminder of what you do and what your product is. Uh, I'm the founder of Jitbit. Jitbit Helpdesk is our flagship product and it's a helpdesk ticketing system with email, live chat, and all those widgets that annoy people on websites. That's us but we don't pop up automatically. So yeah, that's our little excuse. And you've been running that for how long? Oh, let me think. It's about 15 years almost. Okay. So in episode 155, we gave the fuller story of what those first years were like and so on. So if you'd like to know more listeners, take a listen to that. Alex, it's what, four or five months since you were last on the podcast. What have you been doing since then? What does one do with a mature uh, SaaS like yours? Well, not much really, but you know what? Let me rephrase. I actually, there's a ton of challenges going on every day, tons of news and tons of stuff, but it's all pretty boring. So it's the quote unquote boring stage of your SaaS, right? It's, uh-huh. Which is a great place to be. It's a great, great place to be because you you get to, you know, lubricate the engine a little bit, but the engine is already working, which is good news, right? We actually, you know what? Peldik Willitsoni, who was uh, recently a guest on your podcast, he actually changed my mind about this because we met like a couple of years before we met, met at the business software conference. And he said, hey, Alex, how's it going? I'm like, nothing much. I'm a little embarrassed to say that it's pretty boring. He said, no, dude, that's that's a great spot to be. And you should embrace that. And I know boring and I love boring. Boring is good. So, yeah, that's how I see it now. Because boring is good. You get to, uh, um, how should I put this? You get to work on on the nice to have problem, right? Like recently, I've spent a couple of weeks scaling my backhand so we can handle enormous amounts of users, which is a nice problem to have. I was rewriting all my backhand to async 
patterns and etc if you have like a like a couple of grand mrr that's not something you have to worry about right it's not mm-hmm. what you focus on but if you have the scaling problem it's a good problem to have if you have tons of customer support requests from paying customers it's good because means you have paying customers feature requests as you, you of all people should know that right you run a problem uh-huh. product around this if you get tons of feature requests with upvotes and comments and yeah it's also good to have because you don't have to spend time you know looking at the ceiling and picking your nose and trying to come <laughs> up with you know what should i build next uh-huh but just uh-huh. listen to your customers yeah so that's that's probably what's been going on <laughs> So there's some people listening, I'm sure, who are at that point where they've got three or four or five thousand dollars of monthly revenue, and they dream of what you're saying. Like they dream of being able to spend some time working on the back end. Uh, do you enjoy the chance to do that, or you're doing yeah. this out of necessity? Yeah, that was basically the reason I started the company, so I can code and not do anything else. Right? There are some marketing challenges. Still, you cannot ignore them. Right? We. By the way, speaking of interesting stuff we tried in the last couple of months, we started Bing Ads, the paid Microsoft advertising, which Bing? is Bing? Bing. What is this? Yeah. With the search engine. <laughs> Come on. I thought the search engine was Google. There's others. Tell us how how'd that go? Is it is it worthwhile? Uh yeah. It, it's uh well, first of all, it's much cheaper. In Google, we have like hundred dollars a click on our keywords. In <gasps> Bing, you could get the same for like a dollar, maybe a couple of dollars. And you still, I, we've we've tried that with one keyword for thirty days, and I already got some uh, trial signups. And the average um, trial, the average, let me let me check the metrics. So it's about five to seven dollars per a trial signup, which is a very, wow. very good number. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, for those... and the thing the thing with Microsoft Ads is it also runs on Yahoo Search and it also runs on DuckDuckGo, which is a search engine used a lot by the technical uh, crowd, the Hacker News crowd, or Reddit crowd, or whatever. So yeah, that's really something you should be considering. What what led you to try Bing? It was recommended to you. It was just an idea that came to you in the shower. It's just you know just something that I. I was actually, you know, tell you what, just just what I said before. I was actually researching how do I get uh, paid ads on DuckDuckGo search engine, and they said if you want to advertise here, just buy Microsoft Ads, and we're part of their network. Which is also, by the way, DuckDuckGo is very interesting. They're not building their own search engine; they're just a fancy UI on top of Microsoft's um, search, which is what they do is basically they market it as a privacy-based search engine, but they're not a search engine. Marketing is all they do, which uh-huh. is something, which is interesting, right? Because it follows this trend lately that coding, the technical part of your product becomes a, a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Coding is not something that gets you, you know, building something from existing building blocks is very, you know, these days becoming a trend. It's always been a trend, actually. If you look at the clubhouse, which <laughs> Clubhouse, wait, we're, we're the last podcast in existence that hasn't mentioned Clubhouse yet, so I'm glad you brought that up. Talk about Clubhouse. Uh, not from the user's perspective, but from an entrepreneur's perspective. If you look at Clubhouse, there's been, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's been a vital Hacker News article or post about the architecture, about how it's built. And it's built entirely around another, like a third-party voice 
conferencing API that existed years before Clubhouse. And they they don't have their own server infrastructure. They don't have it. It's just a fancy API with a pretty iOS um, app. And I think Clubhouse is like eight or nine or 10 people in their office. They have billions of valuation, but it's just 10 people. It's another example that code is just a commodity. It's not something... Yeah. It's... Um, you know, these days, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, I guess that's the lesson is you, you, you have to steal some parts from everywhere and use those building blocks to mesh it up into something new. There's a whole book about this, by the way. It's called Steal Like an Artist or something. Okay. You're following that famous Picasso saying like, good artist, borrow, great artist, steal. And there's a book, Steal Like an Artist. And it discusses this a lot. Like Steve Jobs was one of those guys who kept stealing ideas from everyone else and then mixing it in, into a new product. Like that, he stole GUI from Xerox and the mouse and then came up with Macintosh. He took the the famous, like the navigational wheel for the iPod player. Mm-hmm. It was from another company, Synaptics, I think the name was, and they, it combined that into a product, which is, you know, yeah, I'll shut up, I see you. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a couple of things I want to touch on that you mentioned. First, it sounds like DuckDuckGo and Clubhouse are virtually uh, no-code products, the way you describe them. Not quite, but almost. Well, it's yeah, just, not quite, but yeah. I, a little yeah, code. <laughs> a little code. But uh, where are we talking? Uh, great artists steal. So on the topic of stealing, do you have people steal what you do? Do you mean literally? Like, <laughs> Yeah, we did, actually. They still the concept, the marketing, the user interface. And I guess because you have an on-prem version, it's even possible for them to steal your code. Yeah, and that we had this. Uh, one of our customers in India is... Um, a great the artist, on-prem- a great artist in India. Yeah, the great artists. Yeah, they bought the on-premise version and they uh, hired some outsourcers to work on it, to tune it up a little bit. And one of the outsourcers just took the source code and launched an ident- like a copy, copycat product based on it. And the worst thing is you cannot even do anything about it. We tried hiring lawyers in India and filing some, you know, season to season and even a, um, like a, um, what's it called? We try suing them and uh, yeah, it didn't work. But yeah, it's just, you know, just how the internet works these days. You cannot really protect yourself 100% from it. Marketing is your weapon. Just be more... Famous <laughs> in the space. Marketing started to steal, although there are people who just try to steal content and so on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So what about the other way around? Uh, if great artists steal, and I assume you're a great artist, are there things that you've borrowed to the point where it's almost stealing in, in the way you do things? Well, I steal a lot of UI, UI concepts and decisions these days. When I just started, I stole a lot of SEO tactics from my website, which is, you know, these days with tools like Ahrefs, Majestic, etc. You can just watch your competitors, see what they're doing. Just make sure you're not watching the top ones. Make sure you watch the outliers, the underdogs, right? Or just started. And the young companies, they also, they always come up with some, you know, non-trivial ideas, marketing ideas, and stealing those is very, very nice. So don't look at the top competitors. Don't look at the top 10 results. Just look at new companies that just started and they uh-huh. probably have tried something that you should also try, which is, yeah, something we did a lot. So great artists who are listening, because I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast is a great artist. There's, a, there's a, sure. an approach for stealing SEO techniques. Hey, 
I wanted to ask you about something you blogged about recently, which is ditching Google Analytics. Yeah. Why would you do that? Like everybody uses Google Analytics. What, what was going on that made you want to do that? Well, actually, a couple of reasons. First of all, we almost never look at it. We almost <laughs> never just look at the reports. Uh, the only thing we use it for was the API. We use its API to, uh, first of all, to discover pages on our website that get no traffic. Mm-hmm. And so our CMS just, you know, every couple couple of times a month, it just queries the API to find if this page is even visited by anyone. If it's not, then we have this cleanup procedure every month. Uh-huh. We also have like a metrics dashboard in Google Sheets that calculates all the LTVs and uh, conversion rates and trial signups and churn, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things it does, it also grabs some data from Google Analytics via API. But we never, ever look at it like with our eyes on a monitor. I never have analytics on a monitor. The second reason is I'm really annoyed by all the cookie pop-ups around. So I really want to spare my users from seeing another one. So yeah, that's been our goal for a while to make a website free of all those uh, tracking pixels and cookies and stuff. And the third reason actually is very interesting because we have our own uh, kind of a home of analytics. It's very primitive and very basic, but I can t- if you don't mind, I can tell it's really quick. Uh, what we do Take is th- the, biggest, the biggest problem in SaaS B2B is that someone else pays for the product, not the person who signed up for the trial. It's someone else, maybe the accounting department, some financial measure who t- actually takes out the credit cards and pay for it. So what we do is whenever someone visit, visits uh, our website, we save what was the landing page. And if there's a UTM um, parameter in the link they visited, like the, com- the campaign, the source parameter, we save that too. And then we record this info when they sign up for the trial next it, it's in the database next to the trial so mm-hmm. whenever that converts even if someone else pays for it we see it so and that's this little analytics hack has been you know basically 90 percent of our analytics of what we base our decision on so google analytics speaking of google analytics we don't use it at all so we've just got rid of it. And then I thought, okay, we still need some stuff for the API. So I looked at their alternatives and uh, even wrote up like a short comparison post. And we ended up using Plausible, which is a very, very nice product. Plausible. And that you said one of the reasons for using getting rid of Google Analytics was you didn't want the cookie message. So does that right. suggest you have no other use of cookies on your website? No, no, we don't. Uh, our, our website is uh, basically serverless. Well, sorry, uh, it's, 100% cache, it's static. There's mm-hmm. no dynamic card, just some JavaScript that does some uh, IP address for the for the things that I just mentioned, some IP address monitoring. But yeah, that's it. We don't collect any, we don't save anything to user's computer. Wonderful. Local storage, no? No, no, no. Well, that's no. fantastic. So now you've been able to get rid of the annoying pop-up cookie message, which everybody mm-hmm. hates and we've just all become used to clicking on or, right. Yeah, and then the second reason you said is uh, you weren't actually looking at it, but you found a way to take the information that is coming in from about referrer, and instead of putting it in the cookie, you're putting it in your database. That's actually quite clever. Yeah, we put it in the data. Actually, the cookie is not the whole cookie law thing is very is basically nonsense because there are tons of ways to identify users without <laughs> cookies. There's fingerprints and all those you know hacks. Uh, yeah. how you can identify the returning visitor. 
basically the cooking law does say that no, it's not just about the cookies, right? It's just, it's mm-hmm. about identifying the returning customer, but yeah, that's, so yeah, that was the primary reason we ditched Google Analytics to get rid of the pop-up and use, um, and help a fellow bootstrapper on the way. Plausible uh-huh. Analytics is a, I think it's just two people running it. Is that the one based in, uh, I can't remember if it's Germany or Estonia? No, I think it's, uh, the, 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 um, it's Estonia and uh, the Netherlands. Okay. To two founders. And how long have you been using Plausible now? Uh, three or four months. So have, have you missed Google Analytics at all since no, then? No, not at all. The funny um, thing is that because I'm using a paid analytics product now, I, just, I keep looking at it every day <laughs> just to justify right, the, uh, the spend. <laughs> yeah, I found that it has some nice features. It sends you an email once you're when you have a traffic spike. Like, hey, a lot of people just visited from Hacker News or something like that, which is a very nice touch. And uh, yeah, be really awesome. happy with it. This is actually a path I want to go down myself and I've been evaluating some alternatives and I'm finding it very hard to actually make the decision to remove Google Analytics, which is why I'm so curious about how it's gone for you. That After three or four months, you don't miss Google Analytics at all. That's No, yeah. at all. Really nice. It's so interesting too, once you start paying for a product rather than using it for free, it's a completely different relationship between you and the product and the company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't use cookies. No, no. It does use some some ways of, uh, you know, identifying a returning visit, but I think it's all based on just the IP address. No local storage, no fingerprinting. fingerprinting. Cool. Moving on, I want to mention another tweet of yours that I saw recently, and it's on differentiation. I found this really amusing. I'm going to tell the slightly clean version of what you wrote. <laughs> so if somebody asks you, how is your app different to enterprise people, you say? We, uh, have, we a, have an on-premise uh, version. Yeah. And to developers, you say? <laughs> we have a dark theme. Yeah. But you're only being honest with fellow bootstrappers you're not different at all. I like this. We're just about yeah. exactly the same as the other 148 help desks apps out there. First of all, I think there must be even more than that. Huh? Every yeah, probably more. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think about all this marketing talk? We get told that you have to find a, a unique angle and oh, a way yeah. to differentiate been, you. Every time you go to a conference, right? You come up to someone, hey, what do you do? And they respond like, yeah, I built this. And you build that. And the next question they ask is always like, oh, but how is that different from blah, blah, blah? And I, it's like everyone read the same business book about marketing or something. It's not. My, my response is always, it's not that different. It's not. It's exactly the same. And this, this niche has been around for a while and the customer knows exactly what they want. So, yeah, you don't have to be different. Just a little bit better. Maybe not overall better, but it's better at something and it's okay. It's, it's good to... Uh, that something is often marketing, stage. right? It's often marketing or SEO or something like that. It's not right. about a better product. It's not about a better product. It's, that's not where you should start, right? If yeah. you want to... Uh, a lot of people keep saying like, just build a great, great, great product. It's, it won't be enough. It won't be. You have to jumpstart it somehow. You cannot just build a great product and put it on your backyard. So just the satellite image will see it, right? <laughs> Google Maps thing, right? You have to put it on a busy street. So you cannot just leave that out. Anyway, building a, 
awesome product is much, much harder than it sounds. I think I've always had the idea that when I build a product, it's going to be awesome. And then, you know, after a year or two, I'm still thinking this product's not awesome yet. I've been working hard on this and there's still a lot of things that are not how I want them to be. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. That's why I love polishing stuff. That's what I mentioned before, right? The boring, the boring part of running a business. I'm just, you know, I have this mindset of when I love polishing and optimizing things, just making this API call 10 milliseconds faster, you know, tune the database. I spend a lot of time doing that, but you know, it takes years to get there. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who was it? Maybe Joel, one of Joel Spolsky's quotes is it takes 10 years to make a good software product. You're at yeah. 15 years. So your product must be really good by now uh honestly mm, well of course it is <laughs> <laughs> hey you're, you're being recorded here you have to say it's great yeah it so, is yeah <laughs> so you said that you find ways to to still work on it and polish it up and so on but do you ever get bored well we talked about boring but do you ever think to yourself like i want to move on this is not what i want to be doing for the next five or ten years and and how, if that if you get those thoughts, how do you fight with them or deal with them? You know what? I don't actually get these thoughts because the amount of uh, of this you know sense of fulfillment and the uh, I've had like let me tell tell you why I've been approached a number of times asking to sell my company and mm-hmm. I've always said no uh, because the um, it's not about the money it's about this uh, you know day-to-day work of making a great product that makes people lives better i know it sounds pretty cheesy but i know some customers are really happy with it it makes me really happy and the dopamine levels i get from it it's pretty cool and um we've recently started using this thing called f5 bot a couple of months ago which is a service that monitors reddit and hacker news when someone mentions your product not just your product you can set it up to watch any keyword you like, which is a pretty, pretty nice marketing tool. But so I've signed up for this and I've saw some, and I've seen some people on Reddit recommending our product. And it's, you know, the feeling of that is just, you know, so good too. So that's person A recommending your product to person B and you have nothing to do with the conversation. You're not part of it. It's just this happening without you putting in any input. Uh, no, no, no. Wow, that's, that's uh, wonderful. I do, uh, when someone mentions my brand name, uh, all I do is maybe upvote it <laughs> on Reddit <laughs> when someone asks for a recommendation. Yeah, but I do I do uh, the shameless plug thing when someone asks for a product that solves a problem. Like, hey, I'm this and that. But you have to re- be really careful on Reddit because Reddit is very hostile towards self-promotion. Yeah, it can be very... It can be shadow banned or something. Yeah, yeah. If you, I guess if it's the mod of some community just decides that they don't yeah. want people promoting their products, one click and you're gone. And your entire, not just that subreddit, your entire account can be banned. Yeah, so you have to be really careful. That's a, that's a lot of power. So no thoughts at all of a new product or project. You're not like a lot of us bootstrappers every day we've got an idea for a new product. You're not in that position? Um, well, I've passed this point. I've had my <laughs> stage of, you know, launching more than 20 different products, but now I'm focused on this one and I love it. We do uh, introduce new features all the time. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a difference between launching a new product and then launching a new 
massive feature based on some new technology in an existing product. So we play around with machine learning in our product a lot. We play around with uh, with the new web RDC and the uh, the display media, which is the API. In modern browsers have, have the API, so you can share your screen, you can record videos without leaving the browser, the browser without installing any third-party software, which is a good thing for for a help desk product, right? So we've installed that. We've built a feature to take screenshots with, with no, or sharing your screen online. We're building, currently working on a thing that allows doing that in a live chat, which is pretty cool. The modern browsers, I mean, they keep um, amazing me every, every time I'm checking out what new technology is out. So yeah. Okay, I so this actually like, that. Many new projects inside of the bigger product. Yeah, I, I would have thought help desk concept stopped at about ten years ago, but it sounds like I'm very wrong there. Many yeah, things are happening. The machine learning is uh, very powerful; can be very powerful because with all those things like GPT three can basically mm -hmm. write knowledge based articles for you. You just drop in a question and it responds with a relevant article, which is amazing. Wow. Uh, you should not use that for copywriting probably <laughs> on your website because uh, it's just a fancy autocomplete engine. So mm -hmm. it basically spits out text that he's, it's seen before and Google will, will see that. But yeah, it's it's a great thing for a help desk tool or all the machine learning features to help the help desk agent who's trying to help the customer, you know, show him some relevant knowledge base and FAQs, et cetera, et cetera. It's been it's really interesting. There's so, tons of space. There's tons of room for innovation in, a, in any space, actually. I like that. So what about the, the opposite problem, which is not new technologies coming on board that you can use, but old technologies that have been, or libraries or concepts that have been abandoned uh, or, or kind of deprecated? How, you, surely you've encountered that over the years with this product. Yeah, well, we've got lucky. We've picked a set of technologies that stayed around for years. We've based on .NET and .NET has been evolving and Microsoft SQL Server always stayed around. You could, you know, there, there's been a lot of technologies abandoned in the mm -hmm. last 10 years and a lot of uh, technology died like uh, I don't know, coffee script or yeah. Well, I'm really bad with examples, but yeah, there's Flash. The... We had Peldion recently. Flash. He talked about how yeah. he built his product on Flash, and well, Flash was completely killed about two months ago. But yeah, yeah, and had to do a yeah, whole rewrite. Yeah, it's so you've a, been lucky. It's a, it's a tough choice. It's luck. Yeah, exactly. It's luck, and. Um, what doesn't bother me though is that the tools, the modern tools for web de web development, uh, are mostly catering for launching new stuff, and new products like Tailwind, CSS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're they're great. Like speaking of Tailwind, it's great for prototyping something new. Mm -hmm. It's super. It's fast and it's great, and you can. It's basically if um, like a UX designer in your HTML editor use you know. Uh, try different classes, et cetera, et cetera. But once you have an app that's been around for years, like five years, you don't want to play with those. You don't want to copy paste like 20 classes. You just want to create a form with a couple of buttons and it looks great from the start. It mm -hmm. already, like you don't apply any classes. It fits into your design, which is um, 
I think it's a pattern for many, many new technologies these days, all the yeah. JavaScript frameworks and, and yeah. such. They're all about making it easy for a brand new product, but they don't think much about what it's going to be right. like in five or 10 years' time. You know, uh, one I think did a good job of solving this or avoiding this was Ruby on Rails. It's something I'm learning at the moment. And I, I first looked at Ruby on Rails when it was the hot new thing back in, I don't know, was it 2006? And I remember at the time thinking to myself, this is great if you've got a brand new product and you can let it create the database. But in the real world that I was working in at the time, I had to work with existing databases and it was useless to me, pretty much useless. But looking at it now, they've done a great job of adapting it so it actually does uh, work yeah. with existing products and databases. I they, think got, it, they moved to the boring camp now. They're, they're... They moved to the boring <laughs> camp, right. <laughs> exactly. The, the product used by people over 30, not by people <laughs> under 30. That's one of the criteria you have to <laughs> probably you have to look at when deciding on the technology stack for your products. <laughs> the average age. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, like you're talking to an old Java developer here and I, I, I feel that sometimes that Java is just for people with gray hair. Yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been a Java developer. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, reformed? Yeah. Well, you know what? .NET and Java are pretty yeah. close to each other. Yeah. C Sharp. Well, maybe a little more fancy, but I always felt like C sharp was Java done right. Java was some of the rough corners taken out of it, but uh, unfortunately, only for a long time ran on Windows. Is that still the case? No, no. .NET Core runs on Linux and Mac, and yeah, it's uh, it's pretty it's evolving fast and sometimes too fast because Microsoft also got into this you know rat race of. Being open source friendly, which means that no, no docs, no documentation, no manuals. Oh, they just no. spit the code out on GitHub and say, okay, that's a new version of our library. Keep using it. And yet, yeah, can you imagine that? 10 years ago, you have to look at the source codes of Microsoft's product to figure out, you know, which parameters should you pass to it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, um, look. Going, running out of time, and I haven't got through half the stuff I wanted oh. to bring up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw something at you that I didn't warn you about. Freelancers. You told me in the last episode that you have a bunch of freelancers you use, but I don't think you told me where and how you find them. I'm asking this because it's exactly what I'm doing right now. Is I'm trying to recruit a Java freelancer. Where do you find your Java or your your freelancers? Well, we don't use any freelance developers. Unfortunately, uh, so no advice for there. We use a lot of marketing folks and designers, and I would say that ninety percent of people who work for us, even the freelancers and outside contractors, is people from this circle that I already know. So that's something I've worked with, uh, something I've, or someone who has been recommended for someone I, I admire, someone I follow on Twitter. Could that be you, or I don't know, penalty, or someone says, okay, this is. Sometimes someone tweets, like, if you need, like, UI redesign, this is a great guy to go to. And I always favorite and like those tweets, and I save them to my bookmarks. So, yeah. I never had any ex good experience with hiring someone through um, through all those freelancing websites, like... Uh, Upwork. I, yeah, Upworkers. I, I, I can't even come up with an example because <laughs> I don't use them. Sorry. So, yeah. And why do you not hire freelance developers? At the moment, we don't have that much development work going on. It's mostly DevOps, and it's me and my CTO, and that's well, my co-founder. Has uh, we've been up to things. We, you know, managed to keep an eye on everything ourselves. 
So with a mature, it's a it's a very easy tie. It's easier than you think with a mature product yeah. uh, done right. Uh, but yeah, we did hire freelance developers before, but mostly, like I said, it's just the circles I already have. Okay, that's really interesting. This is how I'm hoping to find somebody's from my own circles, but so far I haven't had much success, and uh, I'm trying to avoid going on to Upwork, but uh, if I can't find somebody through my normal channels, I think I might go there. I was hoping you had some magic answer for me, Alex. Try, have you tried just tweeting like, hey, does anyone know someone in Java? Are you, are you based in Java, right? Or, yeah, or you're Java, running in yeah. Ruby? Okay. Uh, Ruby's for the, the product I acquired, uh, Saber Feedback, oh, but oh, it's yeah, for yeah. feature upvote that it's all in Java and or the backend's in Java. And I I got to the point where I'm not getting things done that I would like to be getting done. Those boring things like updating dependencies right. and so on, uh, going okay. through the code and finding where I left to-do comments and haven't yeah. been changed after three years. And I figure that I'm avoiding doing this stuff because there's already so many other things I can do as a, as a founder. And but is this stuff really what's stopping you from growing further, growing feature up further, the to do and and, and uh, you know removing dependencies and stuff? Um, no, but it's the the, the to do is just not so important. That's just <laughs> my uh, kind of obsessive nature as a developer. <laughs> but keeping the dependencies up to date is important. I've been burnt a, a few times where we've got stuck in some old version and then we needed to have a bug fixed or get some new feature and it turned out that I had to jump forward so many versions and there wasn't because these are often open source things they're not it's not often a nice migration path to jump from a version from three years ago to today so yeah that's that's what's driving that and and also I'd like the developer to be able to work on small polishing things so they're not really new features but it's like this is something that's we've had customers complain that it could be better and so on. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm just not getting to them, so I figure the solution to a problem for me might be getting a freelance developer. Right. So I want to give it a try for six months, just working one day a week, and and after six months, I assess has this worked. If so, I'll increase the hours, and if it hasn't worked, well, I've only paid you know one day per week for six months, so no great. Right. Cost. right. The so. thing with hiring outside people is. Uh, you have to nail down the ability to write a very clear tasks and very clear requirements, which is something uh, for us ADHD entrepreneurs <laughs> is kind of can be kind of cool, kind of kind of kind of difficult, right? Uh-huh. You, you're used to jumping into the code and doing stuff, and you're getting a bunch of ideas in the process, but it's really it's really hard to formally list all your requirements and this has to be done and then this has to be done and this and most of the times i I believe my problem with freelancers most of the time the freelancers this whole thing doesn't work it's your fault Mm -hmm. because you are not clear what you want so yeah yeah i i find it hard to do focus on something for more than an hour or two at a time these days in fact recording a podcast is probably but i have the most like unbroken concentration longest yeah so the other thing I would like the freelancer to help with maybe is just improving some things on our own internal admin panel that we use, you know, for uh, giving, extending somebody's trial or right. deleting an account completely based on a GDPR request or, you know, those types of things, trying have to solve fitting problems. Have you considered using a no-code solution like uh, 
which exactly targets this problem, building admin panels and internal apps. Yeah, I looked at one and it's a, it's a really interesting idea. Um, also that, um, it still would require me to do the work of setting it up, but, uh, I've tried several and I really like them. I have to say there's some, uh, we currently use AppSmith, which is a very nice one. It, you just pointed at the database. You just the only thing you have to make sure that the database user that the the app uses is very limited in, in database permissions. But yeah, it's it's kind of saves a lot of time. Okay, and it just gives you a bunch of CRUD type functionality for the existing database. Yeah, yeah. So it's a. Uh, uh, I'm not sure you're familiar with Microsoft Access. This is a very old tool from the office. Ooh, yeah, uh, yeah, right uh, back in the recesses of my brain. I had to pull that out. <laughs> access, I remember. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically Microsoft Access on the web. So you create a form, you throw a bunch of input boxes and buttons, and you map them to database fields, and that's it. Okay. It's, it's very, it's easier than to code it from scratch, that's for sure. And maintenance and uh, yeah. so on. Yeah. It's, the free ones are just great. I mean, there's I don't know how they do that, but the, the AppSmith thing is great. The other one we tried is Retool, which is also very nice. And it's also built by like fellow bootstrapping business, started as an indie hacking company. Also very nice, very polished product. So yeah, you should look into that, definitely. Okay, I think I tried out Retool actually, and I was very impressed with it. Uh, I don't know what stopped me from going further. It might've been worries about... Um, having a third-party application have access to the that customer leak, database. Right. Yeah, we're kind of really concentrating on GDPR um, lately, and it's been getting us some really good German clients. Germans in particular oh. seem to care about this. So, And they really, they, they check us out. You know, they go through our, our policies and then they come back with questions about, you know, you're using this company based in America. What are you doing to make sure that you're not right. revealing information you shouldn't be and so on? Yeah, yeah, we have the same. Yeah. And how do you deal with that with uh, these kind of no-code admin tools? Well, well, in this particular case, we have a staging database that does not like uh, sync directly into... That's more for security, not for privacy. So if you make changes, then it replicates back into the main database after a while. That's how we deal with security. But the personal data... Uh, we don't have any personal data left. It's just an idea of a customer and then the date where their trial expires or when they have the next, like, um, we don't have to keep any credit card numbers because it's all outsourced to payment provider. So, yeah, I don't point those admin tools to the customer's data, to their actual tickets and their, I don't know, knowledge base articles. It's just the admin panel for our eternal stuff, for the billing, and it's all just numbers and date dates and uh plan id number two or whatever so okay alex there's one more thing i wanted to talk about before we finish how are you doing for time have you got 10 more minutes sure sure okay sure. uh this is one i actually warned you about in advance which was the good and bad of being a bootstrapper uh again it's from some tweets you, you did a while ago uh do you remember these yeah i think so you've done your homework <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh the bad i liked this one the bad part of being a bootstrapper waking up at 4 a.m to a server monitor alert then spending hours trying to fix that email system 
DDoSed by spammers who register fake trial accounts and sent half a million emails flooding your logs and queues. And in brackets, you wrote literally my morning that day. So does this type of thing happen more or often over time compared Uh, to 10 or 15 years ago? I would say it happens once a month. Uh, And it's... uh, Sometimes, most of the times, it's not even seen by our customers, which is a good thing. But sometimes it uh, it, it is, but and uh, which is a bad thing. That's one of the downsides of being an entrepreneur, being a self-employed, you know, running your own company. But the good sides overweigh it anyway, right? The yeah. the good parts of it is the freedom you get, the freedom what to work on, when to work on, freedom of taking vacation whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific examples of the good side of being a, uh, an entrepreneur yeah. running your own business? Oh, of course. Freedom of where to live. I could basically relocate to any city in the world and basically any country in the world will be happy to have my company as a, as a taxpayer there. So just, you know, that's one of the things. The freedom, the financial freedom is also a huge stuff. Yeah. A huge benefit. The, um, uh, the vacation I mentioned, we used to go pre- Pre-COVID era, we used to go like in 10 vacations with, with our kids. But but the bad thing is that it's never really a vacation, right? I have mm-hmm. to say, uh, we have like this policy in our company, between me and my co-founder, not for all people, for, not for all the team, but between me and my co-founder, we have this policy of 10 minutes away from a server terminal. I can go wherever I want. And I'm uh, I'm a huge fan of, you know, off the grid type of uh, vacations like i take a long distance motorcycle rides through some remote areas etc but i have to plan my route so i'm within the cell reception range i have to carry my laptop all the time that's that there are these are the downsides yeah you can't really go tracking across the sahara desert if you have to be within 10 minutes of, <laughs> yeah. of a server you know I'll tell you what i actually this happened to me last year we went on a completely off the grid hiking trip. It was a sailing trip actually on inflatable catamarans through the through a huge system of lakes. And the cell phones were not working. And I've spent six months planning this with the team, like telling them, Are you, do you remember I'll be gone for 10 days? Uh, two months before that, we stopped rolling out all the new features, only the bug fixes. We frozen, <laughs> we frozen the app, we stopped the CI CD system, the continuous deployment just so I could spend 10 days without a phone in a remote area. And it was, yeah, that's pretty hard. But yeah, you get used to it. It's easier than you think. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea that you prepare by not rolling out new features because it's the new features that break things, right? If you're just fixing bugs, everything just keeps humming along yeah. nicely. If you don't no touch dependency the... updates. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay let's let's uh, finish up there i think that's a really nice way to end up this story of how you managed to take 10 days off <laughs> and had to prepare for it for six months so we'll wrap up there thanks again for coming on the show thanks for having me thank you bye everybody that concludes this episode of bootstrapped you can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm.